Well, hello, hello again, Chief End episode three. Uh, should have dropped a little bit sooner, but I got the plague of death, um, and currently recovering from that. I got diagnosed with strep throat, which is never fun. I think last time I had that, I was like eight years old because I was searching my memory banks for uh, the disgusting gag reflex strep test that they give you when they jam that four-foot-long Q-tip down your throat and tickle your uvula. Uvula? Uvula? And you recoil in horror and dry heave and I purposely didn't drink or eat a whole lot. Well, one, because my throat was rebelling and saying, don't swallow or I will murder you. Uh, And secondly, because I knew that that gag reflex was coming and I didn't want to yak all over over the, the doctor's assistant. So, yeah, I refrained from that. Anyway, strep test came back positive and the doctor came in and shined his little miniature spotlight down my throat and was like, yikes, that's a bad case of strep throat. Um, asked if I wanted a steroid shot. I told him no, because there's too many side effects. So he just prescribed me some good old penicillin. Uh, and I've been taking that for, I think this is the sixth day, sixth day I'm on it. Uh, maybe the seventh day, (laughs) which is a perfect segue into the title of this podcast. Quote, I'm calling this podcast, Is the Fourth Commandment Binding and and Why Presbyterians Remind Me of Charismatics Sometime? And I'm sure that's going to ruffle some feathers uh, for anybody listening to this. But yeah, we're going to plow through this thing. Uh, I'm currently sitting in an airport parking garage awaiting my flight. I got here a little bit early so I could record this. So it might sound like I'm recording this in New York City or Mumbai or some busy metropolis. Um, I've already heard like 19 car horns and there's some like 87 year old security guard putzing around on a little golf cart. So uh, I may get asked to stop because he might think that I'm recording um, observations on something. I have no idea. So thankfully the windows to my vehicle are tinted quite dark. So hopefully nobody interrupts this thing. Um, But if you do hear a bunch of background noise, that is the reason why I am not in studio, but um, in airport parking garage waiting for a flight later today. Uh, So, to the topic at hand, is the fourth commandment binding, and why Presbyterians remind me of charismatics sometimes? Uh, If you're not familiar with Presbyterian circles, you probably have no clue what even is the fourth commandment binding even means. Um, In our non-denominational days, slash somewhat charismatic uh, days, the entire Old Testament was wrapped up into, not even wrapped up, it was like crumpled up, it was like a piece of scrap paper that they crumpled up and just, you know, either chucked in the wastebasket or soaked in kerosene and lit on fire. I mean, that was kind of the approach to the Old Testament. It was like anything that was left of Matthew uh, was just discarded. Unless it kind of somehow pointed to Christ here and there, then it was like, oh, hey, this is great. Or, you know, if they could extract some Christian superhero out of the Old Testament and then write books about how we should try to emulate that superhero, then then they were okay with it. Um, 
you know, so if you were being implored to be like Samson uh, or David or be a leader like Moses, then yeah, they'd keep some of that stuff. If it had if it had revenue wheels, um, then they would keep it. But for the most part, anything that related to any sort of Old Testament law or regulation was wrapped up, um, bundled up, crumpled up, and just discarded in the trash can. And everything, oh, hey, man, it's not about law, it's about love, bro. Um, it's not about religion, it's about a relationship, dog. Um, so they viewed, kind of wholesalely viewed, I love how just, you can tack on A-L-Y or L-Y to pretty much any word and you can turn it into an adjective. <laughs> and this guy that just pulled it behind me is looking at me like, why is he laughing into a big fuzzy microphone? Oh, if only you knew, sir. If only you knew. Uh, so yeah, that was pretty much pretty much their approach. They wholesalely uh, discarded the Old Testament as being religion, and they fully embraced the New Testament as being relationship. Um, they discarded the entire Old Testament as being law, dead the dead letter of the law, and they embraced the entire New Testament as being life, the spirit of life. And, you know, for the most part, it you know, they would point to scriptures like, you know, Christ is the end of the law. Um, they would point to uh, scriptures in the New Testament, you know, that says the righteous requirements were nailed to the cross. Um, and you read those and you go, yeah, hey, that makes sense. Yeah, the Old Testament is garbage. You know, it is it is no longer needed. Um, hence, you know, where dispensationalism come, comes from. God works at different times. And he works in different ways, in different times, I guess, is probably the best way to describe that. At least that's how I understood it. To be, uh, to be a dispensationalist meant that you believe that God worked in different ways at different times. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of... I think a, a fair recap of the kind of non-denominational, uh, popular evangelical kind of, you know, sem- not super charismatic, but, you know, raising your hands during worship and, you know, maybe, may or may not have a personal prayer. <laughs> I can't even get out personal prayer language without laughing. <laughs> Oh, the good old days of a personal prayer language. Holy smokes. Uh, yeah, so so that was it. So um, you begin to kind of go, well, you know, it's, you're, you're constantly trying to ride emo- an emotional high and, an, and a spiritual high, which is fine when you're 18 and the lights are flashing, you know, and you're raising your hands and you're feeling, you know, the music, you know, and the 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 bass, you know, kind of vibrate through your body and the, you know, guy gets on a little drum riff and you're like, Hey, praise the Lord, man. I feel some goosebumps. But then, you know, when you start running into trials in life, that stuff starts to ring quite a bit hollow. And so your soul starts searching for, man, there's got to be more substance to this whole religion thing, this whole relationship thing, this whole God thing. There has to be something a little more stabilizing than the goosebumps that I may or may not feel today. So that inevitably leads you down the path of, you know, either abandoning the faith, as some friends of ours have, getting very mystical, following after the likes of Rob 
clown face bell. Uh, you know, where it's all, everything's touchy-feeling, everything's God, and, you know, God dwells in that tree, and, oh my gosh, I just love my feelings, they make me feel so good. Uh, I mean, we had a lot of friends go that route. Um, we had a lot of friends just say, screw it, this this stuff, this charismatic, pseudo-charismatic stuff ain't working for me, um, and they just kind of exited stage left and went full-on reprobate. Um, then you had others that you know, kind of plowed down the, hey, what's the, what are the traditional paths? What are some of the liturgical paths? There's a good word for you. And if you're listening to this and you're not a Christian, actually, you're not listening to episode three if you're not a Christian. You're like, this guy's a moron who cares about Christianity. So good riddance. Um, I hope you find the Lord. Anyway, liturgical. So yeah, we, we kind of started to explore liturgical, started reading some Puritan paperbacks, started reading Spur- Spurgeon. And you begin to see that the the shift in focus becomes instead of a confidence in my feelings and a confidence in my commitment, you begin to see a confidence in God's mercy, a confidence in God's ability to save, a confidence in God's plan to redeem people. Um, And so your confidence shifts. And as that continues in time, you begin to become more convinced of that because you read scriptures that say, uh, for instance, cursed is he who trusts in man. And you go, holy cow, the whole, the whole model of praying the prayer and raising my hand and crying was in a large extent due to, it was a lot, a lot of it was me trusting in myself, me trusting in the sincerity of my confession, me trusting in the, you know, they would always ask, well, did you really mean it? Um, I remember some parents when I first started youth pastoring, and I was meeting, I wasn't seasoned enough yet as a 17-year-old intern with chock full of life exp- <laughs> chock full of life experiences and theological depth. Um, I couldn't handle, uh, I wasn't experienced enough yet to handle counseling sessions by myself. So the 21-year-old fellow who certainly was uh, a stellar old man of the faith, uh, had to tag along to these counseling sessions. And so this parent came in, you know, aggravated, frustrated that their 16 year old was, you know, living like a hellion. And, and they said, well, at five, he prayed the prayer. And the, the older gent, the older pastor, uh, his, his question, he just immediately fired back at the parent and said, well, did he really mean it? And, Man, I always stick in my head, and I was thinking, really, that's how we're judging eternal salvation and security of souls is by whether or not a five-year-old really meant it? Of course he didn't mean it. He probably just wanted to take the communion wafer so he didn't stand out like a sore thumb and everybody thought he was a heathen. I mean, how many kids prayed the prayer at five or six just so people didn't think that they were heathens? Um, because, oh, hey, I can't take the, I can't take the broken saltine cracker if I haven't prayed the prayer. Um, so did he really mean it? Come on, bro. Uh, so yeah, but that was, so that's, I think that's the setup of the, the pseudo, suedo, pseudo charismatic movement. Um, the decisionistic vein of Christianity, I think it hinges largely on trusting in man. And the scripture explicitly says, cursed is he who trusts in man. So as that sort of be, started to become apparent, 
you start looking for denominations or traditions that kind of lean the other way. Hey, we're not going to trust in man. We're going to trust in God. And hence that kind of has, you know, over the years has led us into the Presbyterian circles. And we first, our first exposure to Presbyterianism was in the EPC uh, denomination, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And that was a very, a very good time, very good experience, uh, fairly reformed. Um, soteriologically, I would say they're very reformed, um, more kind of practice related, uh, not as much as the PCA, definitely not as much as the OPC. Um, so, you know, we're kind of getting into the spectrum of, you know, if you're on a color wheel right now, um, you know, when you start arguing the PCA, you're just in a color. So pick a color. I don't care what color, yellow, blue, green. Um, let's say we pick blue and you say, okay, the PCA is blue. Well, in that spectrum, you have kind of a lighter blue, kind of a medium blue, kind of a darker blue. And that's pretty much the PCA. You're, you're just arguing various shades of blue. Um, now, each, each shade in that blue is going to dig their heels in and, and try to convince you that they are not blue, that they are the way, they are the truth. Um, but that's true with any, any sort of carving out of, of denominations or or divisions within the church. I mean, I am, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. Um, I am of Cephas. Well, all right, you're all just different shades of blue, but whatever. Um, so the EPC, EPC, pretty good, but EPC, we weren't exposed to the fourth commandment being binding in the EPC. That's not really on their radar. I mean, they would obviously say, hey, go to church on Sunday, fellowship with the Lord's people. Um, but, you know, if you had to work on Sunday... They're not going to, you know, they weren't going to come down on you and tell you that you were reaping judgment upon your head. (laughs) Which we have gotten in the PCA, um, which brings me to this particular point. Um, The point of this podcast, over the last six months, uh, our particular church, and I think the PCA in general has really... The, the topic of whether the fourth commandment is binding has really come to the forefront. And I think the catalyst for that was about six months ago. I think it was in the spring of 2017, the Covenant uh, College, Co- Covenant College, Covenant Seminary, Covenant University, the official PCA kind of higher education, their women's tennis team made the finals of their conference championship. And the finals were scheduled to be played on a Sunday. And the women's team chose to forfeit because they did not want to work on the Sabbath. And this was kind of the catalyst for bringing this topic to the forefront. And our pastor got up and he praised from the pulpit the Covenant uh, University women's tennis team's decision to forego playing on the Sunday. Um, And then, you know, he brought out big words like being a Sabbatarian and, you know, fidelity to God's word and all these things. And it brought it to the front of my mind. And I was like, wait a second, wait a second. If that's true, then that means uh, I, I have a, I have a, one of my best friends um, has, he's a Christian and he has, God has provided employment for him in the vein of professional sports. And so for the last 12 or 13 years, 
Obviously, professional sports don't stop playing on Sundays, and so he is there during games on Sundays. And I thought, well, this is interesting. If God's provided employment for this individual, and that employment requires him to work on Sundays, what's going on here? We've got it. We've got we've got some interesting things converging. We have. You know, if, if he refuses to work on Sunday, he will no longer have that job, um, therefore no longer providing for his family. So does that put him in the category of he who does not provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever? Um, you know, I suppose you could argue, well, he could go find a job that didn't require him to work on Sunday. Um, and then I would say, well, you know, which company is that? But maybe Chick-fil-A, I don't know. Uh, so you run into some very uh, real-world uh, real conflicts. Um, and so it's caused me to read extensively over the last six months or so about the fourth commandment and whether it's binding. Um, a couple thoughts. One, I haven't even really come across a good definition of what people say when they say, is it binding? I think what they mean is, is the Christian today required to observe it? I'm pretty, I, I, that's what I've concluded. That's what they mean. They mean, is the Christian required to observe it? And is the Christian sinning when and if they don't observe it? Um, the answer to that for the Sabbatarian crowd is yes, most definitely. The Christian is sinning. In fact, I had an elder in our church uh, a week and a half ago t- tell me, very pointedly, that, quote, they are reaping judgment upon their head when they work on a Sunday. Um, That is very interesting, Um, because then he was quick to make the, uh, the exception, well, unless it's a work of necessity. And so we get into this gray area of what constitutes a work of necessity. And so he instantly said, well, doctors and emergency personnel and firefighters and ambulances. And a guy who was in the conversation um, at the time, he said, well, what about airline pilots? And the elder said, oh, well, that's a really good question. Yeah, you know, I could could be convinced that airline pilots are a work of necessity. And then I just, I I just like, you know what? I, 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 I won't, it... Well, I'll get to the conclusion later of the, well, you know what. Um, So you get into this gray area of trying to carve out and define what a work of necessity is. I could argue that my friend having to work Sundays at professional sports games is a work of necessity in that if he doesn't do that, he's fired. So he has, he's providing for his family by doing that. Ergo, it's a work of necessity. It's not like he's working seven days a week to make $50 million and and he's worshiping money. He's doing that to pay the mortgage, put food on the table, pay the car payment, pay the electrical bill, pay the medical insurance, blah, blah, blah. Um, So yeah, so you get into this this argument. Now, what I've found is, I'm I'm trying to understand the argument from both sides. The, The people who say that the fourth commandment is not binding... Um, they will, uh, here's the, 
you have to separate what I found is people categorize two things. They categorize the moral law and they categorize the ceremonial law. So for people in the Sabbatarian crowd, those who believe that the fourth commandment is binding, they put the Sabbath in with the moral law because it's part of the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments are the moral law. And they say that the moral law is binding, all of it. And the Sabbath is one of those moral laws. Therefore, it's still binding. The the Sabbatarian would say that the ceremonial law is no longer binding, that it's the ceremonial law that found its end in Christ, that it was the ceremonial law that was nailed to the cross. Um, for those outside of the Sabbatarian um, vein, they pull out the fourth commandment and they put it in with the ceremonial law. So they take the Sabbath and they say, oh, it's, it's not part of God's moral law. It's part of God's ceremonial law. Um, that seems a little sloppy. Seems a little sloppy. Um, I mean, if God's moral law is the Ten Commandments, I'm not, I don't see really how you can extract individual commandments from there um, and say, well, this one is no longer part of the moral law. Uh, so yeah, that's sloppy on their part. My objections or my concerns or the questions for further exploration with the Sabbatarian crowd is the confession. You know, they lean on the Westminster Confession. Well, that's fine and dandy. But the thing that bothers me with the Westminster Confession is it does not include in its Sabbath defense Romans 14, uh, Colossians 2.16, or Hebrews, where it talks about the Sabbath being today. Um, And I think that's... I think it's incomplete on the confessions part. And I know this is equivalent to uh, probably being charged with heresy in Presbyterian circles. (laughs) For instance, on the puritanboard.com, here's a guy. He has a question about the fourth commandment being binding. And he starts it off this way. First off, I am not trying to subvert the confessions. (laughs) And I just have to laugh because that is such a Presbyterian thing to do. We uphold the confessions as if they're scripture and it's disgusting. And everybody will say, well, it's because they're taken from scripture. Yeah, well, so are, so are you know, arguments saying that you have to speak in tongues. Um, so yeah, first off, I'm not trying to subvert the confessions. Like what, you're going to, you know, get wood piled up around you and tied to a stake and burnt at the stake for subverting the confession? What is this? Geneva 1500s? What is going on? Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't hold the confessions in as high regard as uh, many, especially leaders in the PCA, <laughs> in the PCA hold it. Yeah, they're great historical. I think, hey, you know, let's see what, let's see what people... Um, have adhered to, generally speaking, for the last uh, several hundred years. I'm fine with that. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. I think there's a lot of humility in that. But to be concerned about subverting the confession, holy smokes, dude, our, our allegiance is to God and his word, not some extra biblical thing, regardless of how 
strong it is, regardless of how sound it has been proven to be. Our, con- our allegiance is to the Lord. Um, so yeah, I'll subvert the confession by asking and, and stating that I think in studying this, the confession is incomplete. The confession does not address Colossians 2.16. The confession does not give a good treatment to Romans 14. Um, the confession does not give a good treatment to Hebrew, the Hebrews passages where the writer is really arguing that, hey, there's a Sabbath rest for God's people and it's called today. Um, and, our, you know, I, the smugness of the PCA leaders to kind of write this off um, really kind of bothers me. Uh, one of the responses by a moderator on there refers to the best knockdown exegetical argument, like, in other words, give me a proof text so I can shut you up, um, is the context itself. You know, then, then why in my Bible is Sabbath capital S in Colossians 2.16? I get the Romans 14 when it, you know, it's talking about, you know, ceremonies and and holy days and new moons. It's kind of general. You can say, okay, that's more ceremonial days. But why in Colossians 2.16, why is my translation Sabbath with a capital S? Why? Were the people who translated it morons and they weren't able to do that? They weren't even, they weren't able to translate it correctly? And then here's, a, here's, here's another response that really chapped my hide. Um, he says, <clears throat> um, where is this? Oh, here's, here, yeah, here's the moderator's, you know, really snarky Presbyterian response. You have to recognize that those predisposed to reject the Sabbatarian argument generally don't listen well to arguments to begin with. Well, thanks for that, you pompous a-hole. Really? So I have a question about why Sabbath in Colossians 2.16 is capitalized, and your blast to me is that, I'm, that I don't listen to arguments well to begin with. Like, go pound sand. What kind of response is that? I want to know why Sabbath is capitalized. And you're telling me, oh, well, if you ask that question, it just means that you don't listen to arguments well? No, it means that you don't listen to questions well. That's what it means. That's what it means, Todd, at the puritanboard.com. That's what that means. It means that you don't listen to questions well. And this is where my frustration starts to boil over with the PCA. I remember reading Spurgeon. Spurgeon talked about this hyper-Calvinistic movement. And I thought, yeah, I've never, I'm never going to run into that. I mean, that must be a thing of the 1800s. And he referred to this hyper-Calvinistic movement as being this finely constructed stagecoach. Highly ornate, beautiful uh, gold and diamonds and rubies and very delicate and intricate. And it was just a marvel to the eyes this gleaming, glistening, shining beauty of a stagecoach. And he said, but then once you attach it to a horse and it hit the first cobblestone, the thing crumbled into a million pieces because it had, it was so finely ornated together that it couldn't withstand the first cobblestone bump. And that's what this reminds me of. Yes, I get we have to take the whole council. Yes, I get that 
I get that we need to take the whole council. I get that Genesis even sort of puts out there that the a seventh day rest was um, included. It was sort of even pre-law it was there. Um, I get all that. But you can't just write off sound substantive objections and questions by just saying, oh, well, if you ask that, it means you don't, you don't deal with arguments well. I mean, that's just the most obnoxious, intellectualized piece of crap you could come up with. That's just a flat-out dismissal of the question. I want to know why Sabbath has a capital S in Colossians 2.16. Additionally, I want to know why Hebrews seems to expand the Sabbath to include all time. Every waking minute we have a Sabbath rest. Which seems consistent to Christ's application of the moral law. Oh, you've heard it said, if you murder your brother. Well, I say to you, if you hate your brother. What? He's making it much more specific. He's making it much more all-inclusive. And that's what I read out of Hebrews, making the Sabbath much more specific, much more all-inclusive. It's a Sabbath rest perpetually from our self-righteousness. It's a Sabbath rest perpetually from our tendencies to want to save ourselves. Um, which leads me to my two, two final kind of objections and critiques and observations regarding the Sabbatarians. Um, the Sabbatarian argument. Um, I feel, I feel, what does that mean? My observation is such that Sabbatarians are, they demonstrate similar characteristics to Pharisees in the New Testament. So the, the trend or the trait, the consistent trait I see with Pharisees in the New Testament is they come to Christ and they uphold what they're doing to be deemed righteous. Oh man, I just got the Earl Grey hiccup burps. That was odd. So they'll come and they'll say, I have, you know, the rich young ruler, I have done all of these wonderful things. I've upheld the law. And what does Christ say? He cuts to the heart of the issue, which is he loves money. And he says, that's great, but you know, Stop loving money and give it to the poor and come follow me. And the rich young ruler goes away poor. Um, what I have, have observed with Sabbatarians in the Presbyterian circles is it's a pharisaical approach that gives them cover to live their lives Monday through Saturday however they please and then pull out the Sabbatarian card as conscience-assuaging, man-impressing justification for, oh, well, I really am a Christian because I believe in the Sabbath, that the Sabbath is binding. Well, why are you living like the rich young ruler Monday through Saturday then? Why do you have your $50,000 a year country club membership? Why do you have your boat why do you have why do you insist on living in the three wealthiest zip codes in the city? Why? Why are these things? Why do you insist on promoting elders that are all white collar 
extremely successful, extremely well-to-do, extremely wealthy individuals. Why is this? Oh, but you believe the Sabbath is binding. Oh, so that's your get-out-of-hell-free card. So, I think that 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 turns my stomach with the Sabbatarian argument. You know, you can judge, judge people by their works. You sort of get a sense for what they really believe, what they really value by how they live. And when I see people double-fisting, gulping the world down Monday through Saturday, and I see zero distinction between money-hungry, unsaved professional man X, when I see no distinction between professionals that are gobbling down the world's comforts and those naming the name of Christ... And the only difference is that those naming the name of Christ say, oh, well, I believe the fourth commandment is binding. That raises a red flag to me. Um, and I think that it it is just, it parallels so much the pharisaical approach of I'm going to justify myself by claiming some unique thing that I believe. Um now you can't you can't take people's lifestyles and use that to invalidate the truth of scripture so i'm aware of that just because people might uh not live as best they should um or just because people's lives don't reflect scripture as best they should that does not mean that the scripture itself is untrue so i get that i'm not using uh poor Christian living as a means to invalidate whether or not the Sabbath is binding. Um, but my observation in researching this and observing it and asking questions and, and digging into it is that the people in my church, they appear to be using <clears throat> their belief that the fourth commandment is binding in order to have their boats, have their country club memberships, have their ginormous, beautiful, wonderful, exclusive homes, have their European two-month vacations, have their Napa Valley trips. Um, but hey, we believe the fourth commandment is binding, so we're fine. That, that, that's, and that, that, that's alarming to me. It's alarming to me. Um, meanwhile, <clears throat> meanwhile, they sit up on their high horses and they, they establish the moral high ground and then they cast condemnation on the guy scraping out a living working for a professional sports team. And you say, oh, you're working for a professional sports team. You got to be loaded. Welcome to, yeah, yeah, sales. Yep, yeah, when, yeah, let's, let's, let's just do the math on that. Billionaire owners are going to be extremely non-stingy and generous with their employees and compensating them. Yeah, yep, that's how that works. Yep. So that means that Walmart employees are loaded. Because they work for billionaires. Yeah, that's how that works. Yep. No, they get exploited. They try to wring every last stinking ounce of productivity out of their employees for the least amount of possible compensation they can muster. Um, you know, so then they'll cast condemnation on the person who has to work a retail job and has to work on Sundays. So they sit up on their high trust fund, extremely wealthy horses and point their finger at 
poor working class individuals and then say, oh yeah, you're working judgment upon your head because you're working on a Sunday and I don't work on a Sunday. Well, maybe you don't work on a Sunday because you don't have to. You ever think of that? And it's, it's, in, it's in line, the more I read about uh, Luther, this is, I'm rambling. This is turning into like a, a hit job on Sabbatarians. <laughs> I really just want to know, I really do just want to know why Sabbath is a capital S. This is where this all started. <laughs> and it, it, got, it got a little angry on my part when they pull out the snide dismissal of, oh, well, if you ask that question, that means you don't listen to arguments well. That, that's where it turned. That's what, this is where it took a turn for the worse. It wasn't my doing. It's your stupid intellectual snobbery that's turning this thing a little bit angry. Um, but it's in line with Luther. I mean, Luther advocated for the violent slaughter of 3,500 Anabaptist peasants. So, you know, the fact that these rich elite elders in the Presbyterian movement or the tradition or the denomination, they worship Luther, they worship Calvin. Of course, they're going to side with the, um, uh, you know, guys that, that advocate for the violent slaughter of 3,500 Anabaptist peasants. Of course, they're going to side with them because that's not their class. Their class is the Luther elitist inside the castle walls, well-fed, um, prosperous ease you know, it's the Ezekiel 16 that they had pride, prosperous ease, um, and excess of food. Luther had that inside the gates. He had pride, prosperous ease, and excess of food. The 3,500 peasants outside the gates didn't. Well, they threatened my food supply, so let's just murder them all and call it, uh, charge them with heresy. Tell them it's for the, you know, purity and peace of the church. Ay, ay, ay. Sometimes I'm amazed that I still even. I'm a Christian. Like, I, I hate so many aspects of the spiritual manipulation that go on with elitist religious leaders um, and the average common Joe. Like, I want to throw up and punch people. Um, anyway, so yeah, that, that's, that's one observation. The other observation that makes me hesitant to jump on the, yes, the fourth commandment's binding. Um, is the fact that the argumentative structure, and I think I'll end the podcast with this because I'm closing in on 45 minutos. Um, I'll end it with this. The argumentative structure is exactly the same argumentative structure that charismatics used. And you're going to say, what? And this is the second half of the title of this podcast why I think Presbyterians are like Charismatics. In Charismatic circles, yes, come to faith, pray the prayer, it's through faith alone and Christ alone, um, if you really mean it and you're sincere enough. Come to faith, pray the prayer, and then, then you start to get involved in the church. You begin to get discipled, whatever that meant. Um, and you quickly find out that Charismatics, for by and large, believe so here's the here's the here's the argumentative structure. It goes like this. If you are a Christian, you will do this. That's the argumentative structure. And with charismatics, the variables that were fed into that function, you can tell I'm a programmer. So the variables that were fed into that, the values of the variables, that were fed into that function were 
If you are a Christian, you will speak in tongues. If you are a Christian, you will have a personal prayer language. That was their argument. If you are a Christian, you will speak in tongues. And I know people, family members even, that came out of the charismatic movement and they still struggle with doubting whether or not they are truly saved because they've never spoken in tongues. Other than maybe a want to buy a Honda, um, you know, Suzuki, you know, stringing together some car names to fake it. Want to buy a Honda, Shondalana Honda, Jane Fonda is my best friend. Uh, (laughs) Oh my goodness. I remember going to these services called Afterglows. So it was like the spirit didn't speak enough through the word. So he was going to be sneaky and elusive and, you know, float around the auditorium and end up in some back classroom where he was really going to bring the sauce. (laughs) So if you got an insufficient hit of the spirit, if the syringe was a little uh, half full tonight, then join us in the afterglow room where you'll really, where you can really OD on the Spirit of God. (laughs) And being on staff and being the high school youth pastor, we were on a rotation, all the lackeys, all the underpaid, overworked lackeys, uh, were on a rotation to go oversee the afterglow service. And holy cow, talk about a, well, I want to be saved and, you know, don't, you're accountable for the things that you shouldn't say. But um, there are, you know, there's some phrases in the world that would capture it well, a cluster something or a blank show. I mean, just a complete circus, a complete circus of just unrestrained emotionalism nonsense just broke out for an hour of people in hysterics crying and screaming and speaking in nonsensical gibberish and then the interpretation coming um and I, it was like you quickly even as even being part of that movement and, and being employed in that movement i quickly became skeptical because the interpretations were always crap <laughs> And I don't mean crap that they were bad. They were just always so stinking general. It was like going to a horoscope person and they read your hand and they're like, I think that you're going to meet somebody new within the next year. Well, of course I am. What, unless I go live in a cave in Afghanistan, of course I'm going to meet somebody new, you charlatan. And that's, you know, the, the interpretation would always come down. I really feel like that just means that God wants us to love each other, man. Well, duh. I just really think that means that we should pray, bro. Okay. No blank, Sherlock. You think? You think? You really needed that guy to like ride on the floor and foam at the mouth and talk like a toddler for 12 minutes for you to say that we should love each other and we should pray. Huh. That's interesting. I was hoping for like winning lottery numbers or something. At least give me, at least throw me a bone that I can at least go test. Give me a fleece I can go throw out. You know, hey, I think that guy just gave us the winning Powerball number. Sweet, let's go give it a try. I mean, give me something. 
give me something that has a little bit of mystique to it. <laughs> oh, afterglows. So back to back to the argumentative flow. The argumentative flow. If you are a Christian, you will do this. So in the charismatic circle, it is if you are a Christian, you will speak in tongues. And it's the exact same argumentative structure in the Presbyterian realm. If you are a Christian, you will keep the Sabbath. And that's that's alarming to me. The argumentative structure is alarming to me. Um, it's very alarming to me. It seems to cut at the solos, as we love to talk about. Um, it seems to cut at Christ being the end of the law. It seems to cut at in my nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. It seems to cut at all those things. And it seems to cut up an elitist culture where you have those that really get it. Oh yeah, hey, Johnny speaks in tongues. He really gets it. Let's promote him to the inner circles, the inner sanctum. Oh, well, that family, they keep the Sabbath. So let's promote them into the inner circles of our leadership structure. Um, and in both instances, the defense to that critique, because trust me, I brought it up in both circles. The defense, the, the argumentative structure of the defense is the same too. Oh, well, there's a difference between justification and sanctification. So I'm not justified by speaking in tongues, but I'm sanctified. Part of the proof of my justification and part of the ongoing growth of my sanctification is that I speak in tongues. And in the Presbyterian circle, the argumentative structure is exactly the same. Well, keeping the Sabbath doesn't get my sanctification, but it is proof of my sanctification. And it is part of my ongoing increased sanctification. So the argumentative structure, the similarity, or not even the similarity, the exactness of the argumentative structure um, is concerning to me. And it makes me not jump on board the Sabbatarian argument train. Um, the elitism that comes with it gives me pause. And the pharisaical living that I observe for those, the people who, who proclaim the Sabbatarian argument the loudest live the most comfortable, exclusive lifestyles in our church. And that's alarming to me. So, by asking these questions, it does not mean that I don't listen to arguments well. And we should reject that if that's the response we get. Because I really do genuinely want to know why it's a capital S in my Bible. I really do want to know why, if Christ extends the moral law that he's asked about into broader, deeper, 24-7, 365 heart issues, why are we not extending the Sabbath in the same manner? Which I think, as I've said, Hebrews does. So these are the questions I have. These are the observations that I have made 
Uh, these are the things, thoughts that have been on my mind since it came to the forefront uh, early er, earlier this year when the Covenant team uh, chose not to, to play tennis on a Sunday. Um, and and another another question I have is and you're saying wow did, did the microphone break what happened oh man the security guard's walking behind me I don't think he sees me yet um, you know I I also and I haven't really thought through this one well so it's probably not going to be articulated exceptionally well um, <laughs> not the others have been either. Um, dude, this guy's creeping up on me. Get off my tail, bro. I'm just talking into a fuzzy mic. Dope. Uh-oh. He's coming close. Um, I mean, pastors, essentially, are working on Sundays. I mean, they get compensated for preaching the gospel on Sunday. If you... And I, this is a, this is a scenario that I want to explore a little bit further, is do you let's say that a pastoral job came open and the candidate responded and said, um, I will serve as the pastor in all of those capacities. I will do hospital visits and I will counsel people and I will pray for the sick and I will visit with the poor and the widows and the orphans. Um, but I'm a Sabbatarian and so I can't work on Sunday. No church on earth would hire him. So I, I, I want to know how that logic lines up. Because if a pastor doesn't work on a Sunday, he's not going to have a job. Now, I know that the lazy response is they would probably very quickly throw that into the, well, that's a work of necessity. It's a God-mandated work. Um, but that is something that's very curious to me. Uh, as you can probably tell, I try to think very programmatically about these things in the sense, very algebraically, probably the best way to put it. Um, all, all programming is, is algebra pretty much. So very algebraically you have, you're removing, um, the, you're, you're analyzing topics from the structure of them, the structure of the topic, the structure of the argument, not the individual, uh, variables primarily. So if you if you analyze the structure, you can plug in different values for the variables um, and examine, you know, your biases, how you approach things on that front. So that, that is a thought that I have. Um, it's a secondary thought. But um, anyway, I'm at 50 minutes and this, this security guard's staring at me like I'm a terrorist. So I'm going to close this thing down, send questions to questions at chiefend. No, 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 not questions. What was the email address? Podcast. Podcast at chiefend.org. Uh, have a wonderful day. And I hope that, uh, hope that we, can, we can continue to promote the idea that we should be humble, um, not arrogant theologians, not arrogant confession uh, defenders, but that we are humble, that we recognize that we're a vapor that is here today and gone tomorrow. What is our life? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. Um, and that, that we can seek to make our devotion and our allegiance be to God and his word and nothing else. Have a great day.